you asked about Leviticus 15, the laws of uh, of Nita, of um, what usually is translated as, uh, they actually often refer to this as family purity laws. I don't like that phrase. Um, it's the impurity that's associated with, with a woman's menstruation. And, uh, and, and it's actually a pretty important thing. Um, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 through 9, verse 9, it says, uh, it says here, he, uh, it's talking about a certain person who's righteous, and it, and it says the basic things that he does. It says, he walks in my statutes and keeps my judgments to do truth. This is a righteous man. He shall surely live, says Lord Jehovah. And then what's defined in the previous verses, in the preceding verses, is, uh, it says, uh, verse 5, And a man is righteous and is righteous, justice and righteousness. He does not eat towards the mountains, and that has to do with idolatry. Uh, he does not raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not file his na- dis- def- not he does not defile his neighbor's wife, meaning he doesn't commit adultery. And it says he does not approach a woman in nida. Uh, so this is one of the biggies. This is one of the big commandments that uh, separates the righteous from the unrighteous. And um, and it says a person who does these things shall live. So what is nida? And what that's referring to in in uh, not approaching a woman that's actually in Leviticus eighteen and Leviticus twenty. And it says in verse uh, Leviticus 18, 19, And to a woman in her uh, impurity of nida, you must not approach to uncover her nakedness. And then Leviticus twenty eighteen, it says, A man who has, uh, and it literally says, A man who lays with a woman uh, who is menstruating and has uncovered her nakedness, he has uncovered her source, and she has uncovered the source of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from the people. So this is a pretty big deal. Now in Leviticus uh, 15, it has a whole series of laws about um, about becoming ritually unclean from the woman uh, in that state of nida, what it doesn't say is it's forbidden to become ritually unclean from her. And what I mean by that is it talks about, for example, if she sits on a chair and then you sit on the chair, then you become unclean until you, know, you wash in water, become unclean until evening. And some people, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of people who are, are uh, relatively new to the Torah who look at this and they and they kind of misunderstand it. And they look at this passage in Leviticus 15 and they think, oh, I've got to get my wife a separate chair. Um, and actually, some Orthodox Jews do that. Um, in Orthodox Judaism, during that period of, of the Nidah, the ritual impurity from, from, uh, from menstruation, the woman actually sleeps in a separate bed based on this passage in Leviticus, Leviticus 15. And, and that's actually, uh, if you go to a, a five-star hotel in Israel, it'll always have, usually have, uh, a bed that uh, a single bed that you can separate, and they call that a, a Jewish a, a bed with a Jewish arrangement. They call that um, based on the Orthodox inter- interpretation of this passage, and I think that's a misunderstanding. I think the key verse in Leviticus 15 is verse 31, which explains what all those commandments are about. Now, in Leviticus 18:20, you have that specific commandment not to have sex with a woman when she is in that state of nida, and we'll define what that is in a minute. But here in verse 31 of Leviticus 15, it says, "And you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness." so that they not die in their uncleanness when they make the place where I dwell in their midst unclean. And what it's saying here is, and when it says uh, where I dwell, that's the word in Hebrew, mishkan. So you could also translate it when they, uh, when they make unclean my mishkan, my tabernacle, which is in their midst. So the whole point of this set of commandments in Leviticus 15 is to keep you from desecrating the tabernacle, from, from going into the tabernacle after you sat in the same chair as your wife, or touched her wife while she was in a state of ritual impurity, or uh, somehow uh, contracted ritual impurity, in, when you're in that state, you, you must not go into the tabernacle. What's interesting is the very next uh, chapter, Leviticus 16, is the laws of, um, 
of Yom Kippur, of the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, which is the holiest day of the biblical year. And one of the central sacrifices is to atone for the desecration of the tabernacle that the Israelites have done. Meaning, it's, there's a recognition that although we have all these rules and regulations not to enter the tabernacle uh, in a state of ritual impurity, uh, realistically that's occasionally going to happen. A person will not realize that he sat in the chair with a woman who sure. menstruated sat, or he uh, touched a woman who was menstruating, or, or whatever. And so one of the main sacrifices on Yom Kippur is to atone for the sins of the Israelites for uh, violating, uh, for essentially making unclean the tabernacle of God. So this is a you know so you know this is actually a big deal. The purpose of all these commandments is to keep you from uh, entering the tabernacle while you're in that state of ritual impurity. Um, now having said that, there are actually two or I should say three types of um, of nida and this is something that a lot of people also misunderstand. Uh, three types of menstrual impurity or ways of um, the three different categories, I should say, of menstrual impurity. Uh, the first one is the regular nida, and what that describes in Leviticus 15 is from when a woman first sees blood, then for seven days she's ritually unclean. So, uh, in other words, the entire period is seven days. Uh, the entire span of, of the nida is seven days. And during those seven days, according to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, when she's in that state of ritual impurity, he can't have sex with her. That's the regular period. Uh, then it talks about two different scenarios of an irregular period. Uh, the first scenario is that a woman, it says, bleeds for many days, um, not in her regular time. In other words, she has a regular period every month, but all of a sudden she bleeds for three or four days. Uh, that's not part of her regular time. And modern scientists would tell us that that's either um, a disease or more often it's actually a miscarriage. Uh, the Torah doesn't specify. Whatever the cause is, she bleeds for multiple days. That's not part of her regular period. Uh, so in that case, she doesn't count seven days like she does from the big, from when she see, first sees blood with the regular period. She counts seven bloodless days. In other words, she, let's say she bleeds for four days, not as part of her regular time. Then after she the, the first day that she no longer sees blood, that's day one, and she counts for seven days from there. And at the end of those seven days, then she's... Uh, considered ritually clean and she can be with her husband um, then they can have sex uh, the third scenario or the second scenario of the irregular period mm -hmm. is a woman who bleeds beyond the seven days yeah. meaning uh, she has a normal her normal period and uh, let's say her normal period is normally on average about five days sure. someone it's a little bit longer let's say she bleeds into the eighth day so uh, if she bleeds into the eighth day uh, and it could be nine or ten or a hundred but as long as she bleeds beyond seven days then she has to also count seven bloodless days, seven days without blood, meaning seven days where there's no blood. Right. Um, so all the days with blood, her husband can't have sex with her, and also the seven days afterwards. Um, now that's the now that's that type of irregular period of which there's two categories. That's usually referred to as zava. Uh, zava means the flow, and that's a word that's actually used in Leviticus 15. So we have nida, and there's another. Two subcategories, uh, special types of nida that are called zava. So the zava type one, which is she bleeds for multiple days, uh, probably three or more. And then the other zava type two is where she bleeds into the eighth day and beyond. And in, in both zava one and zava two, she needs seven bloodless days. Now here's where the confusion enters. Um, a lot of people who are, um, who are not coming from a Jewish background who look and see what did the Jews do, what they see is that what the Orthodox Jews do is they treat every single period as zava, 
it's whatever the number of days of her of her period mm-hmm. plus seven plus bloodless seven. days. Right. That is the, right. In other words, if she bleeds normally for two days or for six days, which whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, then it's those days that he can't be with her plus seven bloodless days. Right. Now in Leviticus 15, that only applies to the zava, but in Orthodox Judaism, what they've done, and you know, I talk about in my first book, the Takanot. This is a clear example of Takanot. It's even called that in the rabbinical literature. Uh, it, it's a takana, uh, a rabbinical enactment, a law that essentially takes every type of period and every type of nida, and it turns it into zava. And the reason they did that is they said, uh, we, we want to be careful. We're not sure what the different types of blood are, and therefore we're going to treat all blood as, as zava. Now, that ent- and it's actually, actually an entire tractate in the Talmud that called Nida that deals with this, that deals with the different types of blood. And I'll, I'll tell a little embarrassing story. Um, I don't know if I've ever shared this in public before, but I'll go ahead anyway. The way I learned about the birds and the bees is I was uh, a little, I think I was probably like eight years old, and I was studying the Talmud with my father. And we got to this discussion about the different types of blood. And uh, I said, Dad, I don't understand what this is talking about. And he explained to me about the birds and the bees. And I said, that can't be true. I have four sisters. I live in a house with five women, and I've never heard of this. It can't be true. He said, we can go ask your sister, Ariella, if you don't believe me. And I'm like, no, no. (laughs) So uh, maybe that explains some of my attitude towards the Talmud, or at least in my my early years. (laughs) Uh, It was a a little traumatic. But but really, this is something the rabbis go into great detail about. And and the reason they go into such detail about it, you know, the Torah talks about the Zavat type um, one. Mm -hmm. It says she bleeds for many days, Yamim Rabim, uh, which is many days. The rabbis uh, kind of ignore that. And what they say is, and I'll quote you from the Talmud, um, it says, uh, actually, it blames the, the Israelite women. It says, the daughters of Israel have imposed upon themselves the restriction that even if they observe it, this is a quote from the Talmud, uh, the daughters of Israel have uh, imposed upon themselves the restriction that even if they observe a drop of blood the size of a mustard seed, they wait on account of it seven clean days, meaning seven bloodless days. Now, what that means is it's not a flow like described in the Torah, according to Orthodox Judaism. It's not just a flow of blood as described in the Torah. It means that if a woman sees even the smallest drop of blood, then she uh, considers herself uh, either nida or zavat. doesn't matter because then you count seven bloodless days in the rabbinical system. Well, this becomes a big problem because, um, I mean, to be blunt, well, you're a married man. You know, a woman has various types types of discharges. Well, if, if there's a, any kind of discharge, uh, many Orthodox women will go into a panic, and they have to decide, is this a discharge that's considered blood or not considered blood? And you know what? It's not always uh, so clear. So there are actually certain rabbis who are experts that, uh, in looking at these discharges. I'm not making this up. There are rabbis who women, Orthodox, very devout Orthodox women, will bring them pap smears regularly, sometimes daily, and say, Rabbi, look at this pap smear. Uh, and tell me, is this blood that I have to wait seven days, or can I have sex with my husband tonight? Mm-hmm. And I remember being told stories about how miracles happened of righteous women who brought the passmere to the rabbi, and their lives were saved because of it. I mean, this is considered a wonderful thing. This is not something that that's hidden or, or they're embarrassed of. It's considered a, you know, there are miracles associated with this. How women's lives were saved because the rabbi looked at it and said, "You have cancer," which actually might be true. Um, but I don't see anywhere in the Torah where it says you have to bring a pap smear to the rabbi, and, and, it, does, and it doesn't say that um, that if you see a drop of blood the size of a mustard seed. It, it talks about a flow of blood, and I think a flow of blood 
should be obvious what that is. Now, um, the one of the commentaries in the Talmud explains that what the rabbis did is they took this uh, self-imposition of the women of Israel, this rule that supposedly some you know Israelite peasant women uh, decided for themselves, and they made it a takana. That's actually um, what it says in, in the Mi'iri, which is commentary on the Babylonian Talmud. So this takana, they, and they attribute it to a rabbi named Rabbi Zerah, uh, who lived probably sometime in the second or third century. So this is a clear case of a takana, um, of, and it's actually a relatively late takana, second or third century, um, where the rabbis have taken the uh, initial commandment in the Torah, which distinguishes between three types of of a period, the regular period, and the two and the two irregular periods, many days of blood or beyond the seven days into the eighth day, and they've made all of them into the irregular period. That's the takana of the rabbis, and it has profound effect on people's lives. Remember, I mentioned that in many Orthodox Jews, most Orthodox Jews will sleep in a separate bed from their wife during the period of Nida. Well, that can be a two-week period. That normally is a two-week period. That means half their married li- lives, they're, they're sleeping in separate beds. That has a profound impact. There are actually women, it's is a known thing in the Orthodox world, there are women who can't conceive because of this takana of the rabbis, because their most uh, fertile time is just after their, uh, a number of days after their period. Right. And it's within that seven-day seven span they ovulate. Uh, for some women. Right, mm-hmm. that's when they ovulate. And, they, and so there are women who can't conceive because of this, and they're considered uh, saints. They're considered women who have sacrificed their womanhood, their ability to have children, oh. I don't. I don't see that in the Torah. I mean, if you know, and it's really interesting, is that if you look at the rabbinical commentators, even Rashi, who is um, uh, generally upholds the rabbinical uh, interpretation, he explains that the plain meaning of the passage is what I just explained. Like, for example, when it says beyond her regular nidah in Leviticus 15.25, it explains. He says beyond the days of her nidah by one day. This is Zavah and its laws given in this passage. And its law is not like the law of Nida, since it requires, I'm quoting from Rashi, since it requires counting seven clean days, etc. So uh, they, they, on the one hand, interpret the passage correctly, mm-hmm. but when it comes to implementing it, then the takana, the takanot kick in, and the takanot say, well, we, don't care, we don't care what the passage says, mm-hmm. here's how we're going to implement it. And the way we implement it is, in my view, in addition to the Torah, and makes it a heavy burden upon the people when it's not supposed to be. It says, thus you shall separate the children of Israel uh, from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my temple, uh, tabernacle, uh, that is among them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not going to the yes. tabernacle these days. Uh, how much of this are we to be implementing? How should we implement this in, uh, in our lives? Well, I would say all of it is applicable, but the application is only um, in two things. One is in the context of the tabernacle, mm-hmm. and two, the second, and, and the, I think the more relevant for most people today, is, uh, is ha- having sex with your wife. Right. Meaning, uh, what Ezekiel is talking about and what Leviticus 18.20 are talking about is during that period of uh, ritual uncleanness, you are not to have sex with your wife, uh, not to un- come close to uncover her nakedness is the term it uses in the, or, or to lay with her in Leviticus 20. So, um, uh, so I think that's the more practical application for most people today. And even in ancient times, if you were an Israelite farmer 3,000 years ago in the Galilee uh, harvesting your crops, it made no lick of a difference whether you uh, slept in the same bed as your wife and sat in the same chair as your wife. When you came up to the, ta- the tabernacle or the temple, a- as you were about to go in, you would go through a ritual process of purification, of washing in water and waiting till evening. And what's interesting is in the New Testament – 
uh, it actually talks about Paul doing this, how Paul had been traveling amongst the Gentiles, and he was undoubtedly ritually unclean, and so he goes through a seven-day process of purification. Why seven days? Because there he's being not impurified from, from Nida, but he's being impurified from, the, from, from touching a dead body or, or even touching a grave. Uh, or even being in the same room as a dead body. So when he was coming up to the temple, that was the time when this would kick in, and we say, okay, now we have to go and purify ourselves. But if you're out and in, in, uh, traveling amongst the nations, or even in the land of Israel, and uh, not um, dealing with the tabernacle or, or with um, with the sacrifices, then really it doesn't have a day-to-day application other than having sex with your wife, which is kind of a big deal too. You know, but it it doesn't mean go and buy a separate chair for your wife or something like that. The Torah says nothing. You know, that's not what the Torah is saying. It, and let me put here's the bottom line: it's not a sin. You don't die from becoming ritually unclean. What you what you die from spiritually is if you're ritually unclean and then enter into the holy place of God. That's the key. If there's a tabernacle and you're coming up to the tabernacle, then the day before you go in, uh, you need to. Um, and generally, what why is there a commandment that males come up uh, on the on the three feasts, on the three pilgrimages. It doesn't say the females, and it's not because the Torah is trying to be sexist. It's because uh, 25% of the year they're ritually unclean, and it would be a undue burden on those women to make them come up for the three pilgrimage feasts, um, whereas the men don't have that issue. Um, and, so, and so the point is, when you're coming up to the pilgrimage feast, you're probably not going to be with your wife either and if she does come up then you just need to be careful if she's in that state of ritual impurity that before you go into the temple you wash yourself in water wait until sunset and then you go in and and actually in archaeological excavations from the first century all the area around the temple leading up to the temple it's surrounded by these mikvahs by these uh, baths uh, essentially a bath where you would immerse yourself in water you know they didn't have running water so they would catch every drop of water they could from rainwater pool it into this uh, bath uh, this pool essentially or a bath a cold bath that was lined with plaster to keep the water from seeping out and just before you walked in the temple you would immerse yourself in the water you'd you know that's where the Christians get the baptism you'd immerse yourself in water and then you would come out the come out and you would be clean as soon as the sun would set and then you would go into the temple and the reason it's at the entrance of the temple is because realistically on the way to the temple there's all kinds of impurities that you're going to come upon and so uh, the practical place to have them is at the entrance of the temple. (laughs) 